Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. The police have the authority to take your stuff without accusing you of a crime under the policy of civil asset forfeiture. That is, they cannot just seize suspicious materials from people under investigation. They can take things from you, even outside of a criminal case. Now look, people ought to trust that police are doing their best to secure order and respond to crimes. But this is a rule that gives them too much deference. And one person trying to do something about that is my colleague, Jared Skorup, the Senior Director of Marketing and Communications here at the Mackinac Center. Jared, welcome. Thanks for having me on, James. What is civil asset forfeiture? So um, you did a good job summarizing that at the top. Um, Essentially, uh, civil asset forfeiture is the process by which law enforcement take ownership of property from people. Um, This sometimes gets confused with seizure. There's a distinction of seizure versus forfeiture. Police will seize property while they're investigating crimes. Forfeiture is actually when the Uh, the state or some government entity actually transfers it over and takes ownership of those assets, typically cars and cash. Uh, What's the thinking behind this policy? Uh, That criminals shouldn't uh, profit from illegal activity. I mean, that's the ideal thinking behind it. Um, We, it is important. Forfeiture is important. We do need a process um, by which, uh, People can take the assets, the law enforcement can take the assets and forfeit it over to the state. Um, think of an example of a drug dealer who uh, has made all of his money by selling drugs to people, by, by clearly committing a crime. And then what do you do once, you, once you've locked him up and you put him in jail or, or he's serving a sentence? What do you do with the millions of dollars in assets that that person has? Forfeiture allows it to go back to the state. They can give it out to victims. Um, or they can use it for more productive uh, purposes. So it is important. It's just, unfortunately, highly abused. Mm-hmm. And that's the forfeiture end is like no one's disputing that like uh, criminals should not be able to keep all their, uh, the gains that they've made from their criminal enterprises. But civil asset forfeiture is a different thing, right? Right. Yeah. And, and actually, even um, civil asset forfeiture even started, um, this started in old British maritime law, where you would have um, typically the British Navy, they'd catch some ship in their waters or with illegal goods or something along those lines. And they'd say, all right, well, I have this ship here. Um, do I have to return it back to, you know, the owner in France? So they passed the process through English law to allow uh, the crown to take ownership of the ship in order to transfer it over to themselves. So that's kind of the initially how it started. Um, the issue, really, this kind of laid dormant for a long, long time for the most part until the 1980s with the drug war. Um, once the drug war began starting, a lot of federal agencies and then in the 90s, state agencies began using forfeiture more and more. And they realized, hey, there's nothing actually limiting us to only doing this in the criminal court system. It's a civil act. We can do it in the civil system. And what that means, if you're not a lawyer, I'm not a lawyer, but you know, getting caught up to this, the civil system is a lot easier uh, to dispute property than in the criminal system. You can do it uh, through a different standard of evidence. You don't have to prove guilt um, and you're able to do it much, much easier. 
Why do you think this policy is a problem? Well, the the main reason it's a problem is that uh, I think on the right side of the spectrum or the conservative side of the spectrum, we have skepticism of government, of government power. Um, they tend to move, move towards abusing that power. And this is another area where it happens. Um, and it happens with police and prosecutors, which is, uh, and this is, I mean, this isn't saying anything super controversial. Here in Michigan and through the 2000s, we had uh, a huge economic recession. We had a lost decade of economic activity and law enforcement had a tool like forfeiture where they said, hey, we can we can stop somebody uh, that we think is involved with illegal activity. And even though they couldn't prove it in a court of law, they could seize their cash, they could seize their car, and they could use it to kind of buttress the budget. And that's why we began seeing a big spike in the usage of this, at least here in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Well, how, how common is this around the country? Does every state have one of these policies? There is a process for forfeiture in all 50 states. Um, in the 1990s, it operated pretty much the same way, which unfortunately was kind of arbitrary. Some places uh, did forfeitures a lot. Some of them did it very minorly. And even within Michigan, um, there's some jurisdictions that do it a lot and some places that don't do it very much at all. Um, one of the early pieces of legislation that we got passed on this, um, this has been in effect for about seven years now, was just a requirement of that all law enforcement agencies had to report, did you do a forfeiture? What did you take? How much was were those assets worth? Was it cars? Was it cash? Did you charge someone with a crime? Did you convict them of a crime? And so what I point out to people is most Michigan has 83 counties. Most counties do no forfeitures at all. Um, and then even among the ones that do, it's very, very minor. Uh, but we do have six or seven counties where there are, are a lot of forfeitures and in which there are hundreds of people um, or in some some years, thousands of people who lose their assets without being convicted of a crime. Let's talk about this reporting requirement, because I think it kind of uh, brings up the issue of like what is possible uh, in, in this policy, unit. because it sounds like, you know, uh, forfeiture in general, it's an important policy. No one's disputing it. The civil asset forfeiture, uh, that sounds like it's either you do it or you don't do it, but it seems like there are actually other options. I mean, you can do it with conditions like you can do it, but you've got to report on it. So what are the options that are available to legislators in this issue? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the way that this practically works is that you have somebody where they are involved in an illegal activity in some way, or at least law enforcement has a reason to believe they're involved. And in Michigan, a lot of these cases, what it, what it was is maybe somebody was driving to a medical marijuana facility and they didn't have the medical marijuana card or their medical marijuana card was uh, expired or they, they were growing marijuana and law enforcement said, you know, you grew too many plants, you didn't have the right type of license or people went to a, an event that didn't have the proper liquor license or something along those lines. And so what law enforcement is doing is they're saying, all right, maybe they charge them with criminal activity, um, in which case, you know, no problem. That's great from my end. But often they wouldn't. They would say, okay, we don't have enough evidence that you've been involved with criminal activity, not enough to charge you, but we do have enough evidence that your assets were involved in illegal activity. So if you had a car that took you to 
a marijuana facility, or you had a car that took you to a place that didn't have a proper liquor license, the standard of evidence in civil court uh, years ago was preponderance of the evidence. So basically more likely than not. And you could forfeit a vehicle over that as opposed to requiring beyond a reasonable doubt to get a criminal conviction. So that was why it was the first thing we did here in Michigan was raise that standard of evidence. Then um, also in Michigan, back before 2016, if police seized your car or seized your assets, they could require you to pay a 10% bond, 10% of the value of the property, just to challenge the forfeiture. So a lot of people just walked away right then. So we got rid of that bond requirement, which meant more people were able to challenge it. And then finally, in 2019, we began requiring a criminal conviction for most of the forfeitures in the state, unfortunately, with a lot of loopholes. But there's lots of policy um, kind of along the way, as you said. Mm -hmm. All right. So um, when you started, were these things politically possible or not? Um, uh, Because you said we're, we're we're putting conditions upon civil asset forfeiture. In 2015, you were able to get some. You got a little bit more later on. Like um, when he started, was it just a matter of teaching legislators what this uh, this policy was, or was it politically possible even then? Um, it wasn't political politically possible probably to get what I would call as the ultimate reform on this. Um, the Mackinac Center actually did a study on forfeiture back in the 90s, and at the time, um, particularly on the conservative side of the aisle, it was a very we're a tough on crime, very uh, strong kind of drug war. The prison population uh, was growing. We had a lot of laws being put on the work, on the books. I actually talked to our author who wrote that first report. This was at a time, I mean, nobody was really involved in this issue. The ACLU wasn't doing anything on it. There weren't any main groups that were involved. All you had was a couple of scholars that were hearing stories, um, often from some law enforcement officials. One of the first guys I met getting involved in this was a guy named Ted Nelson, uh, who was a Michigan State Police Sergeant, and he had taught the forfeiture program across Michigan for the Michigan State Police in the 90s. And he thought, I'm doing this great thing. I'm, I'm helping our budgets. Um, I'm taking money from the bad guys. I'm getting drug money off the streets. Isn't this great? What he eventually learned was he's going around to these departments and they're totally misusing it. He's finding out that they're not getting criminal convictions. They're taking it from people who are unlikely to fight this in court, which makes it easier. And so that, I think, started coming out and shifting people's opinions on it to by the time we got to 2015, 2016, where we we're seeing our first legislation, we actually had groups like the Mackinac Center, the ACLU, some other criminal justice reform groups that were willing to come together and find some like-minded law, some lawmakers that were like-minded, at least on this issue. How is this a tough on crime policy if you're not charging people with crimes? It's a great question. It was one I asked a lot. Um, Unfortunately, I think it just kind of got wrapped up among one of those issues where there is a very clear group that benefits from this, uh, which are local police departments and prosecutors. And that's by directly getting more money for those departments and also just by making their jobs easier for prosecutors. The prosecutors are able to move through these cases punish somebody that they feel has done something wrong and they don't have to go through and do the very hard work of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that they've actually been guilty of something. And so those groups were really standing in the way, talking about 
this, you're making it easier to be a criminal in the state of Michigan. We're the ones standing up against the bad guys. Um, and that was something we had to spend a lot of time explaining, bringing forth the right victims and, and just talking about constitutional rights and things of, of that issue in order to kind of move, move the ball down the field on this. Well, let's dig in a little more on that. What specifically are you doing on this issue to change what is politically possible? Well, the first thing was just getting interested in the issue, being lucky enough to work somewhere um, where there was, I'm able to spend my time spending the time digging into this um, because there really aren't, the people who are harmed by this, they tend to be low income. They tend to have very low assets. The typical uh, amount of cash seized from the 6,000 forfeitures in Michigan is about $200. The typical worth of the vehicle uh, that is taken is three to four thousand dollars. So a three to four thousand dollar car, um, you know, not worth very much. Most likely taken from someone who doesn't have a lot of money. But I was able to kind of pull together a coalition on this. Find people like Kim Budden, who was over at the ACLU. Find some criminal justice advocates. Um, there have been some law enforcement groups that that have um, current and retired police officers who are involved in issues like this. So we were able to pull together a coalition and then also just by digging through the reports and filing public record requests, finding victims of something like this that were willing to come out and share their story and talk about how they got ensnared in this. And, and you know, somebody has to go through and pull all those things together. Um, and so that was kind of my role, doing a little bit of the research, but mostly trying to pull together the right coalition to start getting reforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are some of the people that you found? Well, th- we've had, uh, unfortunately, Michigan has a bad distinction of, of being a state where we have a lot of victims for this. Um, so some of these were sharing stories just through the state police reports um, that were anonymous. But some of the stories that we did share, um, one guy was a guy named Wally Kowalski, who's an engineer. Um, he lives out in Van Buren County, which is way mess- western Michigan. He was a medical marijuana patient. Um, he was trying to grow under Michigan law. He had um, nearly all of his equipment uh, taken. He had his bank account seized. Um, he actually was kicked off his property for a series of months while he was trying to fight this. Um, we had. Sorry, what does that mean? Um, so the police were investigating the crime, so they needed to access to his property to. Uh, so to his home and to his outbuildings where he was growing the property. So he had to find another place to live for a couple of months. Um, there's the Daco family, which is a family in Fraser, Michigan. Um, they were working with some allies of ours called the Institute for Justice. So there's there were several families that were small business owners. The Dacos owned a grocery store. There's the Chung family. They owned a Chinese restaurant. Those were families who had their bank accounts frozen for months while they were being investigated for avoid, avoiding these federal reporting requirements. And so the feds would come in and uh, seize the bank account and try to negotiate with them to get money, even though they didn't, none of these people, by the way, were, were charged with any criminal activity. Um, there was the Ostapo family. Um, they were uh, some people, they lived near Saginaw, Michigan. Their son, um, this is kind of an example of, of one-way forfeiture works. Their son was illegally selling uh, marijuana that he was growing on the family farm. He was living on part of their, uh, they, they were a farming family, so they had a home down the street from where they lived. 
but the police, they seized and they convicted the son, but then they came in and seized cash and vehicles from the parents of the guy who was convicted. There was no, uh, they never proved, the sheriff never proved that these assets were gained from the activity. They never uh, showed that the parents even knew about the illegal activity. They're an elderly family um, that uh, they never truly got uh, compensated for all these assets that were taken, but they had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on attorneys. They lost a classic car. Um, so those are the types of people that we are able to do some videos and some articles to share their stories. And the theory that you're going by is like, look, we have to demonstrate to legislators that this is a problem. We have to demonstrate to normal people that this is a problem that we need to solve and that you've got a good policy solution that should allow police to do their jobs while pull, while making it harder to abuse this policy. Is that what you were thinking? Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes you don't want to take uh, just an extreme anomaly of a story. I mean, you always have these anomalies in society that everybody will use an example to show, to try to push some public policy objective. And often um, public policy can't solve that issue. What we were doing was saying, here are some people who are representative of something that happens hundreds or thousands of times every year. So we had the real stories. We were able to deliver it with videos, opinion articles, but we also had the data to say, these families are not atypical. Here's another family. Here's another family. Here's another family that this happened to. And then actually had tried to show a policy solution saying, here's how we think you can affect this while still allowing police to be police, prosecutors to be prosecutors and not help out criminals. Okay. So you've got some research is in collecting some data. You've got finding specific examples. So kind of like reporting uh, skills that are involved. Uh, you've got direct lobbying skills is in work telling legislators, seriously, this is, this is important. You've got some marketing skills of saying like, here's a video we're trying to broadcast. We're trying to get more, uh, more people involved. What else does it take to move public policy in the state of Michigan? Well, the forfeiture is one of those issues where, um, you know, you would show a poll and say, do a, do a poll on civil asset forfeiture. And 90% plus of people would say, no, of course, people shouldn't lose their assets uh, to the state without being convicted of anything. The problem is most people, they have no knowledge of this, that it's happening. And even if they do have knowledge, they're really not, how much are you really going to do? It affects you so minimally. The chances of it affecting you might be pretty small. Um so we were able to at least show and, and, and use um, social media and marketing and draw attention enough that if law enforcement or if politicians did hear about this, they were generally opposed to it. So then the question was working through the details of what needed to be done. And I would say that was the one thing I did not have coming into this, which was going through and actually writing the bill and in a way that got all the legal specifics right. Um, and allowed police to do their job properly, not casting too big of a net while very narrowly targeting what we were trying to prevent from happening. And that was where I had to rely on groups like the ACLU and the Institute for Justice. Uh, Institute for Justice has been doing this for decades, who really knew the insides and outs of this. And frankly, were able to counter a lot of the information that we were having, we were hearing from prosecutors. I mean, we had these local prosecutors calling up their elected officials, telling them, don't do this. And we had to know enough about this to be able to counter that. Yeah, that's an issue. You bring up the issues of intensity. Um, 
okay, sure, you've got a poll that says everyone kind of uh, agrees with your idea, but not necessarily all that strongly. Whereas opposed that um, all these legislators have prosecutors in this district, have local governments that hire police in, in within their district, and those people are interested in, in, in keeping this power, uh, these powers. In fact, with that type of political scenario, it seems like most legislators should tell you to get lost. I trust the people in my districts more than uh, you people at the Mackinac Center, the Institute for Justice, and the American Civil Liberties Union. So how did you get over that barrier? Man, honestly, um, we just had some good state lawmakers that were willing to stick with us. Um, uh, Jim Runstead, who was a state house member, he was the chair of the Judiciary Committee. He Now he's Senator Jim Runstead. He was somebody who he really wanted to learn about this issue. He had heard some horror stories, but he was hearing from his law enforcement. So he brought us in repeatedly to sit there with law enforcement and really hash out the details. And I'll never forget um, one of those meetings. And then in testimony was the Prosecutors Association showing slide after slide of these horrific you know, huge amounts of marijuana and fentanyl being delivered across the street and pictures of the police pulling people over with that and saying, we need forfeiture to get these things off off the streets. And I thought, man, if, if I didn't know a lot about this issue, I would tell me to get out and say, this is a horrible issue. I need to hear from my local law enforcement that know about this. Luckily, we were able to counter that and use the points and 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 some of the lawmakers were able to say, did you convict that person of a crime? Yes. Okay. Sounds like we're on the same page. We should be able to take that. They would just ask that after slide after slide of these 10 or 12 examples. And we were just showing, yeah, if you criminally convict someone, absolutely. We're all here. We all want forfeiture. We want drugs off the street. We want money off the street for those activities. And we were able to just go through it. And, and we had lawmakers that luckily were we're willing to stick out and listen to both sides and, and understand the issue enough to be able to counter some of that. I mean, it seems like then that the uh, uh, the biggest barrier to uh, to getting this policy for you was just legislator interest involvement in the details of the issue. I mean, that seems like a, a tough a tougher problem to solve than it should be mm-hmm. because legislators only have so much time. Not every legislator is going to sit through a debate between you and a prosecutor to go through the fine details on that. Uh, on this issue. So how did, were you able to get the success that you've gotten on this, uh, on this issue? Well, at the beginning of the term, um, Democrats and Republicans usually list out their policy priorities. And one of the things is that we had a couple lawmakers that were willing to put civil asset forfeiture reform and push that as part of their policy reforms. And that signals to leadership, the leadership of the House and Senate, hey, this is something they want to work on. So Michigan has uh, term limits. So we get new house leadership typically every two years. We had a new house leader come in, a guy named Tom Leonard, who who then ran for attorney general after that. But he came out of the attorney general's office. He was a lawyer. He had been a prosecutor. He understood this issue. And so he said, yep, I'm with you guys on this. I'll be able to provide some cover. I'll be able to explain to my members what we're actually talking about here. And that was good enough. You know, you had somebody else where if you had a lawmaker who said, I'm hearing from these groups that I kind of like on stuff. I'm hearing some from victims, but I'm also hearing from my law enforcement. Who do I listen to? Well, they, they often will listen to their leadership. And we had House leadership on the Republican side and the Democratic side both coming together on this. And then also we just had we had retired sheriffs. We had retired law enforcement that were willing to come out and say, I practice this. I saw it and I support this reform. And that was really huge. 
Mm-hmm. How did you find those people? There's a group called Law Enforcement Action Partnership, LEAP. It's a national group. They um, they have a lot of law enforcement, uh, mem- current uh, law enforcement and retired law enforcement who um, work in a variety of different states and are and often are um, reformists, I guess I would say, on a variety of criminal justice issues. And so two of those members were in Michigan, um, Ted Nelson being the guy I mentioned earlier, and they had worked and they listed forfeiture as one of their expertise. So I just found their numbers and gave them a call and learned a whole bunch about them and, and learned more about the issue. And uh, Ted Nelson said, man, I've really been waiting for somebody to come up and take up this issue because it was one of the things he saw as a law enforcement officer where he really thought it was being abused, um, but the word wasn't really getting out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you haven't quite gotten everything that you've wanted on this issue. What's mm-hmm. standing in your way? Yeah, so Michigan what needs now, to change? Yeah, to Michigan now requires a forfeit or a, a criminal conviction for most cases of forfeiture for all drug for almost all drug cases. The issue with that, that that's good. That was what we were that was one of the steps that we were pushing for. The problem that you have is even if you require a conviction, one, there's still a loophole for assets over fifty thousand dollars. So if you have law enforcement where they um, you know, they said, hey, we are alleging that you you sold enough drugs to own your own home. We're going to forfeit your home. They don't have to get a criminal conviction. Um, there's an exception for assets over $50,000. The other thing, uh, the ma- mainly the key thing, is you can get a criminal conviction on something, but it doesn't, nec- it doesn't then mean that your assets should be forfeited over to the state. I might be driving and have a small amount of drugs on me, or I might be that's not atypical. Right, right. Very typical. Um, I might be involved in illegal activity in some way, but that doesn't mean that I gained my car or my bank account or my home from that criminal activity. That's the second step. And so even though we've gotten the criminal conviction, we are still seeing law enforcement where they get the conviction, but they're seizing someone's car or they're seizing this cash and, and they're not showing that the person gained those assets from that activity. And so the solution that what we've pushed for, and we do have five or six states do have, is what we call criminal forfeiture, which is you you charge someone with a crime, you convict them, and then the same judge and jury then look at and say, did they gain the assets from this criminal activity? And then they determine, can the state forfeit it over? And that means that somebody is sitting there with the same jury, same judge, they understand the situation, and most importantly, they have an attorney. If you're a low-income person, you do. everybody gets an attorney in this country if you're charged criminally. You don't get an attorney if you're, you're over in civil court. And so if you're a low-income person and you're trying to fight in civil court, you got to come up with the thousands of dollars to fight that on your own. Criminal forfeiture would change that as opposed to what we have with civil forfeiture. How optimistic are you that you're going to get what you want? Uh, I am pessimistic in the short term, but I'm optimistic over the long term. I, you know, I think that when we we get batches of lawmakers uh, that unfortunately right now, there's really not much we've been able to do further on this than, than what we had a couple years ago. Lawmakers, they tend to pass something. And they say, hey, we solved that issue. And so my job now is to go back and say, hey, I have enough data here to show you that we still have a big problem. Um, and then I'm going to need 
lawmakers that really want to take up criminal justice issues again in a bipartisan way. Um, I'm always eternally optimistic that we can find those. Um, but I have not been able to get any lawmaker bite at this issue um, for the last year or so. I have begun hearing about it again, uh, mostly saying, hey, after this upcoming election, we'll, we'll start talking about it. So I am optimistic in that. Thank you for helping us and lawmakers understand what's within the Overton window. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.